Welcome to the Future of Space. Today we have Amy Webb and Ryan Hogan from the Future Today Institute. Amy is a best-selling author and was named by Forbes as one of the five women changing the world. Listed at, on the BBC's 100 Women of 2020, ranked on the Thinker 50 list of the 50 most influential management thinkers globally, and her latest book, The Genesis Machine, explores the future of synthetic biology. Ryan is an associate at the Institute and an installation-based artist. His work explores the limit of space, form, and meaning. Ryan, Amy, welcome to the future of space. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you. I mean, that was kind of a, a mouthful. I, I apologize for stum <laughs> stumbling on that list of, of, um, of placement on, on lists. Let's, um, let's start, Ryan, with uh, your three words to describe space. Uh, yeah, I'll quickly list those. Uh, but first, um, I wanted to say that space is, it's ineffable or indescribable, which almost renders the rest of my answers kind of pointless. But uh, when hearing about space and the cognitive effect and impact that it has, uh, it just seems remarkable. Uh, and so that's, that's why I chose that word. Uh, I also find it to be accessible. Um, Really, I mean by that it's becoming increasingly accessible. Uh, there are more opportunities to engage in space, especially on the robotic side and, and launching satellites. And uh, eventually uh, there will be more opportunities to travel and for tourism. And finally, uh, it's limitless, uh, especially to our conception. Uh, it just seems boundless and, and very expansive. So those are my three words that I would use to describe space. Amy, what would be your perspective on the on those three words? Sure. Well, I love what I love Ryan's answer. Um, I guess I'll pick up where he left off with expansive. That was my first word. Um, just you know, from a sort of astrophysics and cosmo cosmology point of view, um, we don't know what the actual bounds are if they exist, and that the universe is expansive and expanding. Um, second, dangerous. There's a lot of stuff flying around in space, and that is because we've put a lot of stuff up there. So a couple of years ago, I wrote a piece for Wired magazine about the increasing volume of space junk. And what a lot of people don't realize is that a tiny fragment, a flake of metal, um, when it's, uh, when it's hurtling toward us, you know, a vehicle that people are in or, or something like the ISS, it can actually have a, a pretty significant and horrible impact. <clears throat> and what's interesting is that when I was in high school, our debate topic, my freshman year had to do with space junk. Um, I've been out of high school for, you know, many years. And so the point is that we were debating this issue in the early nineties. It's now the early 2020s. And we seem to still be debating. Um, and so space is dangerous. Um, I think the other thing is it, you know, we are, we are moving back toward space-based um, warfare, which is, again, when I was a kid growing up, this is something that we were concerned about. And it, it disturbs me a little bit that we've arrived back at this place, not for the purpose of battling a, you know, foreign 
two Earth entity, but battling each other just off planet. Um, so I think space is dangerous. And the third is inevitable. Uh, the, the James Webb telescope is literally going to change our reality. Um, you know, and we're, we, we're going to see things that we haven't seen. It's going to enable us to do more exploration. Um, and while I agree with Ryan that we, you know, Ryan and I share the same viewpoint, which is we obviously need to fix what's happening on our planet. Um, but that, that doesn't need to be sac, you know, we, we can fix what's on our planet while also exploring space. So. Now, with the work that you do with the Institute, and one of the things why I reached out to you many years ago, Amy, is I love that you create a, a, a human picture of the future by looking into the past. There's, there's a lot of anthropology, there's a lot of the humanity in, in it. Why, in terms of future of humanity, what going to space will bring to the planet? I mean, obviously, you know, it will bring a lot of technologies. It will elevate the conversation in science. But in terms of evolution, in terms of our, of our relationship with life, what will space bring to us? Ryan's got a great answer for you. Ryan, go for it. Well, I, th uh, I think, you know, we've kind of lost our sense of awe. We've lost our sense of the sublime. Uh, I think space or exploration offers us that. Uh, it does offer us opportunities. Of course, there are things that uh, we can do for resource extraction, as humans do. But I, I know you've talked about the overview effect before with some of your past participants. Uh, I really am interested in this cognitive shift, uh, this awakening that it can create for our species, a sense of empathy, a sense of oneness with uh, with the world and and beyond. So I think that's where space can help guide us uh, to implement uh, something in foresight. We, we look at preferred futures and one that's also inclusive and inclusive for, for our entire species. I also think there are other reasons that we should explore space. Uh, Amy brought up the James Webb Space Telescope. As we do these larger scale technological marvels, there are spillover effects that are generated. Uh, with the Hubble ta uh, Space Telescope, um, from that we have more advanced ways of doing mammograms. Uh, so inevitably, uh, whatever we discover from the James Webb Space Telescope, we can use those technologies for other uh, opportunities as well. But I think a big one is, uh, and, and Amy kind of touched on that, um, it doesn't have to be a zero-sum proposition. It never has to be space or Earth. It can be both. And anything that we learn to do on other planets, for colonizing other planets, visiting other galaxies, that technology, again, will inevitably help us live on this planet and the evolution that we encounter here. I think, it's, oh, sorry, sorry. I think it's worth foregrounding a little bit what Ryan said about the technologies developed for off-planet use have real-world implications. So, and that's always been the case, um, you know. And and some of the some of the uh, the focusing technology that got developed for the James Webb Telescope, the refraction, the mirror technology, you know, that probably will have some implications for how we 
create autonomous fleets and how we move around and calibrate things. So um, again, I, I know that space, especially when we're, we're really struggling on earth with so many things and so much uncertainty, space can feel frivolous. Um, I think what he said is really important. He's right. We've lost our sense of awe and wonder. And we have some opportunities in front of us to not just explore, but to develop the kinds of things we're going to need going forward. As someone who's studied the, the past, um, both you and Brian, the, um, do you believe that getting to that tension, that place of tension and pushing the boundaries is actually a requirement for evolution, for that learn, for that learning curve? Because otherwise we get too comfortable. We need to get outside of our comfort zone to reassess the values that we choose to move forward with. Is it an, an unfortunately a necessary part of the of the of the of the, um, of the journey of growth? Well, I think in the sense of innovation, any constraint is usually necessary. Uh, there, there used there needs to be something that inspires that innovation. So uh, again, if we're talking about evolving and, and moving beyond, yeah, I, th I, I think that's been instrumental in uh, growth in life since whatever inflection point marks the beginning, uh, if you wanna frame it that way or look at it that way. One of the things that we, you know, we do as futurists, but we try to get, we try to inspire others to do is to push to the edge of plausibility, right? Um, and that is challenging to do because it requires you to sort of think in a more expansive way and not to tell yourself no. Um, that, that sounds easy and it is certainly easy for me to say, it is very much an art and it requires practice. Um, and without pushing ourselves to the edge of plausibility, we, we you know, we don't get we don't get to unlock those new opportunities. So constraints are important. Um, so is expansiveness. And I think Ryan and I are talking about one of the core tenets of what we do, which is you have to think near term and long term simultaneously. You have to alternate between flared thinking and focused thinking. This is just not the way that most people are used to operating, and it can be a challenge. That kind of thinking is definitely more of an Eastern philosophy, the, the, the yin and the yang, finding the balance. There's not one or the other. It's always a little bit of each and on both. And there's never this place of perfect balance. Even, even the idea of balance in, in nature is just a kind of an harmony within all these tensions. You know, if you, if you think of, of a tree that's standing up, it has to be rigid enough so that it can stand up, but flexible so that it moves with the forces. So is it this constant push and pull and finding the right balance? And, you know, in our, I always say that the, the, the North American culture is the youngest culture in, in our history, but it's the, that kind of teenage attitude of the black and white. You need that energy to, you know, to make room to build yourself a place in, in that history. And as you get older, you start to get, you know, a little bit more in the grays. And ultimately, you want to have the input of the elderly or the wiser crowd combined with that that um, energy of, of the youth so that you get a certain, you know, uh, equilibrium in, in the way that you move forward and the balance. 
Amy, Ryan, a couple um, weeks ago, I wrote about the necessity of for artists and creative storytellers. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why the Renaissance happened is because there were some people with a lot of power and a lot of money who had the vision of hiring artists to create a vision of the future. Amy, you come, I mean, you founded the Institute. It's more like a think tank. Ryan, you're, you're back. I mean, your, your title is really an artist. How did that collaboration happen? And what is an artist brings to an institute like the, uh, like your think tank? Yeah, maybe I can start and then, and then Ryan can, can go next. Um, so I would not characterize FTI as a yes. think tank. Um, we are management consultants. Um, now, we do a ton of primary research and we give away a lot of our frameworks and we've open sourced our methodology, but most of our time is spent advising Fortune 50s, government agencies, hedge funds, VCs, things like that. Um, the, there are different type of there are different types of, of foresight practitioners. So I have a background in game theory and economics. So I'm approaching this. And, and also for the beginning of my career, I was a journalist. So I'm approaching this from uh, the perspective of data-driven models and pattern recognition and um, telling compare, you know, developing compelling narratives that help leaders reduce uncertainty so they feel comfortable making big bets. There are lots of different approaches, and I think Ryan and I complement each other really, really well, because Ryan does not have a quant background. He's got more of an artistic background. So maybe, Ryan, you want to talk a little bit about that? Uh, yes. Uh, so I, I did study uh, strategic foresight, uh, California College of the Arts. It came from a design thinking MBA program. So my, my background actually comes more from, from a design side. Uh, of foresight, but ultimately, that's what we're trying to do. Or the the objective of strategic foresight is to design better futures. Uh, and of course, it's important to bring more people to the table uh, to to create those futures. Uh, but yes, uh, before studying foresight, uh, I was a practicing installation artist. Uh, I studied art and philosophy prior to, to engaging in my foresight studies. But the thing that appealed to me with foresight, it seemed like a natural um, a natural next step uh, in applying some of that uh, maybe um, uh, kind of less transparent way of thinking, if that makes sense. Um, and yeah, so... Uh, I remember an end of, a mentor of mine described foresight as social architecture. Uh, again, getting back to this design element. Uh, so foresight practitioners and futurists, one way to, to collectively bring people together is to create these visions. Uh, sometimes we do that through creating an artifact, if you will. Uh, that could exist in the future. Uh, but ultimately, when we're writing scenarios, again, we're creating these visions, uh, we're creating these narratives, we're trying to pull an individual from where they are in the present into that future to help them have a visceral, a visceral reaction and a visceral response to that 
respective future. I, can I, I'll just add one thing. What we are not doing, Daniel, is we are not making predictions. So I think that that is, yeah, but I think it's important because we are, our job actually, and you'll appreciate this given your background, our job is to make you uncomfortable. As futurists, our job is not to make you feel comforted. Our job is to get you to challenge your existing mental models, to get you to challenge your cherished beliefs and to sit with uncertainty that that is what we do and to, to see alternative pathways. Um, that is to your point that you made earlier, that is actually not something that people that are, you know, North Americans do well, I would argue Western Europeans don't do it well. You know, um, this, this is something that is increasingly hard to do given how fast society moves. It's definitely, I think that one of the, one of the successes of the human species has been to kind of bring a certain stability and predictability to the unpredictability and chaos nature of life. When we were back mm -hmm. in the nomad, we were following the changes and we were more at the mercy of everything that happened around us. When we decided to settle down and create agriculture, we started to kind of fight a little bit with our environment so that we can build on it. And the success of the human species has, has been to kind of manage the, the growth that every time that we get to that that limit, that boundary, we figure a way to move forward. But in the process, sometimes we get ourselves too comfortable. And right now in this era of technology where it's really easy to lose the perspective or the, or the depth of the process, um, we've, I, I mean, I've written a lot about that with, in, with Phil the Wild. We've lost the connection with these dynamics of life, the, the, this tension and that movement. And yes, we have to get outside of our comfort zone because that's the only way that we learn and then we grow. And we have to remember that what we need to, to get is the tools and the skills to navigate within the, the, uh, the unexpected because the path to a mistake or an innovation is exactly the same. The only difference is the result and the hindsight but it's always hard because you don't know. And the, the failure needs to happen on the business level, on the entrepreneurial, so that you can learn along the way. But it also happens on the personal level and on the cultural level so that you can find and decide how to move forward with the values that you decide. Amy, just um, one more question the about the... was. Were you always kind of aware of the importance of the non-quantitative uh, perspective of life, like from a, an artist's point of view, or did someone at some point tell you, or you, you found yourself learning of the 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 the, the 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 importance that they bring to the conversation? No, I mean, I think um, I think of myself as a kind of human Venn diagram, so I. Um, I was, uh, when I was little, I was, I was always participating in the science fair. So I was a pretty, like in science Olympiad. So there was that part of me. Um, but I, I actually have a background in music and I went to a music conservatory at the beginning of college. Um, you know, and, uh, anyways, um, and I did forensics, which in the United States is competitive speaking and sort of improvisation. And then there's the 
part of me that thinks in patterns and numbers. So um, I, I think I represent a sort of multidimensional thinker. Um, I would say that I'm a specialist in foresight and a generalist when it comes to what I think about. Um, I think, unfortunately, we've we've rewarded, we've created a system where people must be specialists in a singular thing. And anybody who fits more of that human Venn diagram profile, you know, is a weirdo. Um, I, I love weirdos because I, I want to surround myself with people who are brilliant and who can think in these different dimensions because they've, you know, they've had experience in that way. So that's, I love working with Ryan. I think we complement each other really well because he's another weirdo. Um, in fact, everybody who works at FTI, everybody that we work with, you know, none of us have a normal looking resume. All of us are, would be considered weirdos in the corporate world, but there's a reason that our work is good and that people want it. And it's because we've got this sort of hybrid thinking approach and we all come from different, we are all come from vastly different backgrounds and we have very different worldviews. And I, I think, you know, we all, everybody on our team would rather surround ourselves with people who are brilliant and see the world totally differently um, than people who are agree a hundred percent on politics or the future or even how to do things. I mean, Ryan can tell you, fill you in, or maybe we shouldn't, but half the time in our company, we're like, hey, maybe we shouldn't do it this way. Maybe we should make this same framework 15 times over again. <laughs> um, so anyways. Ryan, well, I am. Um, uh, sorry, okay. go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say, um, interestingly, I you know did a lot of math field day competitions. I was planning to potentially go to school for engineering, but somehow the humanities side won out uh, as far as at least uh, my, my studies went. But uh, again, to echo what Amy said, I, I think there is this multidimensional thinking that is required for, for foresight, for future studies, uh, because again, things don't happen in a vacuum. Uh, again, when we're looking on a systems level, uh, alternative domains impact others all the time. And, and that's what we're really trying to do is explore those. And again, see how they impact each other, see what kind of consequences can result from that. Uh, so yeah, I, I, we and, and really we probably all have a, a bit of a Venn diagram where, where we um, have interest and focuses. Uh, our, our focus goes into other areas, sorry. Yeah. But I kind of think, I mean, sorry, I know we're derailing you a little bit, but I, I just want to drive <laughs> yeah. home the point that, that um, these are good things, you know, and I think the most successful executives that I've advised that I've been around, the ones that I draw inspiration from, they're the same way. You know, they're these people that have really have this expansive knowledge. Um, they have weird backgrounds and they just you know, again, they think in a similar way. They want to surround themselves with brilliant generalists. You know? I, um, I wrote some time ago about how artists, it was their, their, they need to live on the fringes of society in some ways because it's their, their participation in society is to remind people of other perspective. Once you, 
once you get back into the nine to five and the grind of everybody's, it's so easy to get into that unfortunate cycle and you, and you forget to step out. I do, I do believe that artists, um, purpose is to live on the fringes of society because it's their responsibility to remind the rest of of the people of a different perspective. And I guess that's what, or the, the weirdos is the same way. And the Future Today Institute is kind of that. You are purposely keeping yourself on the fringes, on the outside, so that you can guide everybody else of a different perspective that sometimes is hard when you're caught into the short term and you need to kind of look up and see, you know, beyond the, uh, the horizon. Is that correct? Uh, yes, I, w- I would say that's correct. Um, and that, that goes across all of the, the work that we do uh, at the Future Today Institute, yes. Um, I can go into more detail with some of that work, or if, if you had a different direction to take it, I'm open to, to both of those. No, absolutely. It, I'm, that's exactly where I was going. I was going to a more concrete example of work along with uh, uh, Amy's new book. So go ahead, Ryan. Well, I did want to take the opportunity uh, to talk about our trend report. Uh, if you think that's good, Amy, to kind of, to kind of go in there. Um, we have just released our newest edition of our Future Today Institute Tech Trends Report. So this is our 15th edition. It's released every year. This year we have uh, 574 trends uh, that are um, that the, the fully the full scope is 13 different categories of those trends. Um, but one thing that we do that's different from other uh, research uh, groups is that we show our work. We provide our methodology. We uh, open source that information. Uh, to help others uh, as they're doing their own research. But really, the trend report is just the first step. Um, Again, we are kind of pushing the edge of plausibility with this, but in and of themselves, the trends only get us so far. Uh, But trends and another um, component of our work, signals, uh, those are new phenomenon that could signal any type of change. We use those to, again, do the work of foresight to create scenarios uh, to create those visions that are going to allow us to interrogate the future, uh, to question those cherished beliefs, and to, uh, again, give us the guideposts uh, to arrive at alternative outcomes. Uh, so that is one way that we are directly doing that in, in our everyday work. Yeah, that trend report is, well, there's 14 of them, because we did make one PDF that has all 668 pages, but that seems abusive to people. So we split them into individual reports. Um, But yeah, I mean, most of the stuff that we do is help organizations. um, Normally, they just want to know, what do we need to be paying attention to? Where is the inflection point? Where do we make our big bets? How do we grow? Um, And so obviously, we can't talk about a lot of most of our work because we're under agreements. But typically the results are, you know, Ryan just came off of a project that is going to result in less environmental damage when it comes to creating clothing in the future. Um, You know, and 
And, and to, to make that happen, you know, comp and a, wh a whole ecosystem has to reimagine itself. It has to, you know, be open to alternatives. And that's, that's harder to do than you may think. Um, so the, the work has real world tangible output, but we also work on fun stuff. So we get to work on shows and television shows and movies that are set in the future. Um, again, we're, we're trying to unlock imagination in people. Do you think that when people imagine the future, they make the mistake of envisioning the future around products or technology rather than human values and principles? Because we're, we're often we fall into, we fall victim in creating this really either gloomy or utopian idea of the future, when in reality, it's neither too much of an utopia and too much gloom is the human behavior find there these check and balances and then we evolve with the tools and technologies. Um, so I guess that's part of your, of your task at the, at the, at the Institute to remind people of, a, of looking at the values and behaviors rather than products and technology, correct? I would say it depends. There, there is a branch of this work that is, that is about, you know, and maybe Ryan should be talking about this. You, you can do this work and it results in new products, right, Ryan? Uh, yeah, you can, uh, for sure. Um, again, I that is that is a way to, to, to do this work. But I I do like looking at this social aspect more. This um, again, you know, we we kind of frame them with archetypes often. So we try not to just look at a utopian or a dystopian, but kind of looking at a spectrum of of possible different worlds. Uh, so yes, no, I think you were, uh, I would have, I would have spoken more, uh, the direction you were going in. Yeah. yeah I mean, uh, with that, so I would say it really depends, but our, our task is less about time and more about uncertainty. So sometimes we have companies come to us and they want a 10 year time horizon. Tell us what the next 10 years is. And my answer is my question is always why 10 years? right? Why not eight years or 15 years or 150,000 years? Like why, how'd we land on 10? And there's never an answer. The, the answer is, well, that just feels like that feels right. 10 years is almost never tied to a company's corporate strategic planning cycles. Most uh, planning cycles happen in three years, three year cycles. So 10 is not even divisible by three. So that doesn't even make sense. Um, so typically, we hear that they want to do long range planning, but what most companies want is three years. That's about the outer limit that they can go. And what they're really trying to do is make decisions about, you know, sometimes it's about like, what product are we gonna make? What service are we gonna make? How do we, how do we grow? So there is a little bit of a push pull and part of getting to the edge of plausibility is pushing companies to the edge of their own comfort zones. And giving us the space to say, hey, rather than focusing on this tech, can we focus on a community and its relationship to the tech and work backwards from there? Um, so it is, you know, it can be a challenge getting everybody to align for sure. Now, Amy, I know that you have to go soon and I want to make sure that you talk about your book, your, um, the, the genesis. Yes. The genesis of, uh, go ahead and, and share with the audience the, um, what is it about and sure. um, where people can get it? Sure. So um, all of us at FTI focus on different 
technology. So Ryan focuses on space, among other things, and I focus on artificial intelligence and um, something called synthetic biology. Synthetic biology is an umbrella term, just like AI is an umbrella term, and it encompasses different technologies, biotech, CRISPR, gene editing, things like that. I kind of got interested in this while I was working on my last book about AI, and that's because a lot of the same companies, investors that are in the AI space, weirdly enough, are also in the biology space, and I was curious as to why. The simple answer is we can now program living organisms the way that we program computers. And the point of synthetic biology is to design or redesign organisms to have new and improved purposes. Um, and this, you know, there's, there's a lot of potential outcomes here that range from creating new types of environmentally friendly materials like nylon um, using synthetic biology processes. Uh, I've got a bottle of whiskey in my house that was created uh, from molecules versus a traditional distilling method. Um, you can create cultured meat, starting with uh, stem cells and putting those stem cells into a bioreactor and getting chicken out um, that is actually healthier than the chicken that you would buy in the grocery store because it doesn't have the hormones and the antibiotics. So we are standing on the precipice of literally being able to design and redesign life. And I really wanted to take a deep dive because it strikes me that that has some profound downstream implications. Um, so the book is an exploration of this emerging area of science, the companies and the people. It, it's really about people. So it's, it focuses on individual stories of scientists and everyday people. Um, but what we're going to be able to do with it, how I think we're going to talk a decade from now about synthetic biology, the way we currently talk about AI, and then risks. Um, there are serious risks um, that are, that go way beyond what you're thinking. So this, my, my, the least of my concerns is designer babies. Um, there are lots of other potential challenges on the horizon. Um, but but the the impact here is that this is a technology we're going to need to survive. And to link this back to space, you know, humans aren't gonna, like in our current form. We're not going to survive on Mars. Um, so isn't it plausible? that at some point we engineer ourselves so that we can, you know, and we fork our species with a different code. And we've got um, Martians that have a human base that have been tweaked to live off planet. And we have people on planet who might be tweaked to live with the results of our climate emergency. Um, these ideas challenge conventional beliefs and they seem dangerous, but all of this is already in motion in some way or another. So the point of the book is to get people to have a conversation about this now, while we have a little bit of time, rather than under duress. Um, and, and at that point, it becomes too late. You got, a, I think, an accolade or um, a little shout on um, on LinkedIn with Eric Schmidt uh, from Google, who yeah. was reading your book. Yeah. Yeah. Eric Schmidt uh, has, has given it a very, very nice endorsement. And, and this is an area that he's also um, invested in and, and paying attention to. So it's a wild new world out there. And this, this book is about science, but it is very much not a science book. It was written for everyday people. I do. Um, 
I've written about how we will live longer, maybe not bigger, but longer because just the scale of the universe demands it. Um, mm -hmm. Traveling to a different constellation doesn't make sense when you live for a hundred years um, to manage the time, first of all, in the distance. So you need to figure out how to get to that five, three, 500, you know, age and where now traveling to a different constellation is like a trip to, you know, across the, the, the world in some ways. And that evolution is going to be both a, a technology, biotechnology evolution and an, and an evolutionary biology. Um, but I mean, it's, it's not a, if, or when it's, it's going to happen one way or the other. Do you, do you have a couple of min uh, minutes or you have to go? I, I need to go. Ryan can maybe stick around and continue to chat. Will that work for you? Excellent. Well, uh, Ryan and I will talk a little bit more art and, uh, and space and Amy, thank you so very much. I'll make sure to put the, the links to your, to your website and the Institute and uh, everywhere they can find you. Uh, so that we can keep track of the trends and the reports and all the amazing work that you do. Thank you so much, Amy. Amazing. Thank you so much for having me back. I appreciate it, Nick. All right. Bye. Ryan, talk to me about your journey to um, to the Institute. Was it a, was it a, you, you and Amy knew each other before or was it kind of a, of a, um, fate happening and then you guys met and then there was a synergy um, uh, tell me the story uh it was probably more of the latter than the than the former um oh i i did just want to say one other thing relating to her book and um and kind of how this ties into space if i can do that just real quick uh of course of course another besides the the well it, it it's all a human human side of it but Besides the actual uh, modifications to humans, uh, synthetic biology has other applications. Um, again, even though space is becoming more accessible, I even mentioned it at the beginning with one of my words, uh, space is still very difficult. Um, it's, uh, it's, a it's a complex and complicated undertaking. A lot of what we need uh, in space isn't there. Um, and it will be very difficult to take large payloads with us. Uh, so again, any type of in situ um, method or process or technology that can, well, create uh, uh, and help us harvest the materials that we need uh, will be beneficial. And, and again, one of those applications is synthetic bio biology, whether that's, again, we have bioreactors on Mars that that do create our cuisine and our food um, or producing vitamins and medicines for astronauts as they uh, might have extended life and go on these longer distance space flights. So, so again, there's all kinds of applications, again, tying it all kind of back together uh, to that previous topic and uh, the topic of the podcast. Uh, as far as my journey to the Institute, I had previously used the, the trend report in some of my previous work. Uh, so I was familiar with, with the Institute and the work that they did, um, even appropriating some of that and some of the research and scenario writing that I did with other projects before arriving there. So that's how 
I uh, got to know the Institute before joining. Um, I have been with the Institute um, for a little over a year. So uh, I actually joined um, after COVID happened. <laughs> uh, I know there's been a lot of disruption and change uh, of the way we do things. Um, and I think that kind of created actually an opportunity for me to get more directly involved. Uh, and yeah, so uh, Amy and I did not know each other personally beforehand, but again, because of our uh, respective interests, um, our um, exposure to the world of foresight, and just really our desire to affect change in positive ways, uh, I guess that was maybe a um, uh, that fortuitously or uh, serendipitously brought us together yeah, at, at the Future Today Institute. Nice. And are you still working on your art installations? Um, uh, I, can you share some of those, of those that you're working on right now? Well, so I, I did create for, for several years um, after, after I, you know, completed my undergraduate studies, I kind of pivoted uh, a word, you know, that is often too, too used in, in the world of, of, of business and things like that. I, I did kind of pivot to this direction of foresight. Um, so I, I don't create installations as much as I used to. It is something that I have, um, I have attempted to get back into, uh, I I am kind of working on something right now, but I don't I don't really have. It's not in a a state where it, it's complete or finished or uh, ready for display. But um, yeah, I I don't mind sharing some of that uh, previous work though with you um, uh, for sure. I, some of the work I did, uh, I would use a lot of synthetic materials, but I would try to use them in a way that created these biomorphic or or biological looking, um, I called them landscapes. They're, they're not like landscape paintings in a, in a traditional sense. They're these, uh, again, biomorphic looking landscapes, uh, biomorphic forms. Uh, I was really trying to, I think in a way, uh, kind of, again, like how we approach with foresight, wanting to create like alternative worlds or alternative views. Um, I wanted to create essentially artifacts that, that weren't representing something else. They were their own form. Um, maybe something that we didn't naturally find <laughs> in, um, in the environment around us, while at the same time still referencing uh, things in biology or something you would find in a laboratory or something you might find under a microscope. Uh, but again, I think where, whatever I, the themes I was playing with, the, the directions I was taking with the art, uh, again, kind of runs parallel with, with, with my foresight practice. And, and ultimately, um, that is how I express those desires and thoughts and, and ideas now. It's a, it's a different form, but <laughs> kind of the sum, same underlying 
um, themes and practices. Are you um, are you excited at this new era of what the what the technology and the expense into space, the opportunities it will present for an elevating art form? Like the other day, I was um, I was visiting the California Science Center where the the space shuttle, uh, shuttle is, and there was the Apollo capsule. And mm-hmm. at the bottom of the capsule was this burned ceramic, you know, when it re-entered the, uh, the atmosphere. And then automatically thought of the Chinese artist who used a lot of fire in his own paintings. And I, I thought of him creating something mm-hmm. that when the, like a, a, an object re-enters the atmosphere, does a pattern fire is used as a, as a, as a tool for creation. Um, there's going to be so many new technologies now, and there's going to be new places, new situation, obviously the, the, the lack of gravity in, in some places. As an artist myself, like, it really excites me. I, I assume that you're the same um, looking at the, the, this new era of, of art opportunities. What do you think? I think it will, I mean, again, uh, I don't know if we even can fully conceive of, of the opportunities that it will create. Uh, I, um, as you said, I mean, there's many different ways of looking at it. Um, the technologies that can be incorporated into the art making process, the prospects of, of what kind of artistic expression um, and artistic experiences can we create in these new environments? Um, uh, so again, so many different ways of, of looking at that. Uh, something I've really been interested in, again, um, you know, we, we talked about earlier having lost our sense of awe uh, and how space can revive that. Uh, again, you know, this theme of the overview effect. Um, I, I feel like that's what art fundamentally should strive to do. Uh, you know, is to inspire awe, to create a sense of the sublime. I think that ultimate expression happens <laughs> with the overview effect. But um, uh, I think art that can do that, I, I, I feel like that's, again, what what the, the role of art is supposed to do. So I, I just generally, I've wanted to explore how are there maybe mechanisms for kind of um, creating that feeling in our minds. Um, so maybe people don't have to go to space to, to be imbued with that empathy or that, you know, overwhelming feeling that it can create. Or is, is there, is there a way to create a minimum viable overview effect, you know, so that, that anyone on earth can, can experience that, um, without having to go to low earth orbit. Um, uh, I'm reminded of the total eclipse that happened. Um, I don't remember what year that was, but several years ago, um, I was fortunate enough to be in the the path of totality. I think that's if I'm remembering correctly the term. So I was able to witness it. Um, there was there was a brief scare that uh, that a cloud was going to block the entire experience, but um, it it thankfully did. Um, it dissipated, it moved away. Uh, 
even that um, was a remarkable experience. And, and again, I, I don't know exactly what the overview effect feels like, but for me personally, it did inspire awe and, and a sense of the sublime. Um, uh, so again, I, to tie it back all to your, to your, to your question. Uh, no, I think this will create, um, unprecedented, um, types of, of artistic expression, artistic experience. Uh, and I'm very excited to see what it can do, uh, to help us, um, again, uh, renew that sense of awe. Given the opportunity, would you go to space so that you can uh, you can look at back at the at the Earth? Uh, I I I I want to. Yeah, I I have my um, I have some reservations. Uh, again, as commercial space flight becomes more common, I don't think I'd want to be some of the you know first individuals to do to 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 take those flights. I, I won't have the opportunity to be, you know, uh, on some of those first flights, but, uh, as it becomes a more standard practice, uh, yeah, I think my comfort level, uh, would increase and I would definitely want to take that opportunity. Nice. Ryan, if, uh, if people are interested to, uh, to learn more about you, do you, um, besides your profile on, at, on the Institute's website, do you still have your um, your art site, your personal site, and that people can look at? Uh, yes, uh, yes, uh, you can find that at uh, ryanphogan.com. Uh, some of my older work. Uh, yeah, you can see again some of those biological-looking uh, landscapes or forms that I mentioned previously. That that's a great place to to see those archived. Excellent. We'll, we'll make sure to put all the links in the descriptions and the, uh, in the post. Ryan, thank you so much for your time. I really look forward to seeing your work and your collaboration with Amy and what the Institute uh, comes up with in the, in the years to come, because I think it's a, such a, a fascinating, it's a challenging time, but I think it's a fascinating also time. And un unfortunately, in our history and an evolution, I think some of the best of humanity rises in the worst of times. So um, thank you again. And I look forward that our path cross and, uh, and then we catch up over a nice bottle of wine. Uh, yes, I look forward to, to that point in the future as well. Excellent. All right. Bye. Daniel, thank you.